Hello and welcome to Big Ideas Into Action. This is another special edition of WRI's podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this episode, we'll be looking at adaptation at the local level. Let's do it together rather than you doing it for us. Because if you do it for us, it will never be the way we want it to be. We'll be looking at why locally-led adaptation is important and how those most at risk of climate change can see its benefits. The work that you do in the first neighbourhood is evidence that it works for the community. Once that is shown, it goes like wildfire if works for the others. But first, let's head to the Caribbean and the island of Jamaica. I'm Liz Levy. I'm from Jamaica and I farm hot peppers specifically scotch bonnet peppers, which is what Jamaica is known for. Liz Levy, just like farmers and many others across the world, has seen weather patterns change. What is normal now? Is it the years when we have four months of back-to-back rains? Or is normal half the amount of rainfall? What is normal? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. It's affected me to the point where I've had to relocate my whole farm from one area of the island to another. When it comes to climate change, the first thing is just to accept that it's real. eh? It's not a fluke, it's not an odd year. Then it's very liberating. You can start um, looking for help and you'd be surprised to know how much help there is out there. The question then is what form this help takes. Broadly, there are two answers. First, mitigation, where action is taken to limit climate change. Second, adaptation where action is taken to limit the damage done by the impacts of climate change. Tamara Koga is a senior associate working on this at WRI. Adaptation is recognising that climate change is affecting us, it's having different impacts, and that we need to adapt, that we need to do things differently, that we need to change the way we design cities to adapt to rising sea levels, that we need to change the way we go about farming and producing crops to adapt to changes in precipitation and increased drought, that we need to start planning ahead for the different climate impacts that we're seeing compared with mitigation, where we're talking about trying to reduce global temperature rises by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, lowering our reliance on fossil fuels so we can try to mitigate the impacts of climate change, but at the same time, they're already facing us. And so we need to start being proactive and adapting to those impacts. But just as the world varies from place to place, community to community, economy to economy, so the impacts of climate change vary. And this affects how adaptation needs to happen. Climate change doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't impact people in a vacuum. It's part of everything that we do. And so bringing in those who who really understand the nuances of how different adaptation solutions might affect a community and what's more likely to succeed, what are unanticipated consequences, can hopefully help make sure that the solutions that are taken are most appropriate for that community. In South Africa, it's the time of rain and there are a lot of floods in many areas. Rose Molokwane works for Slum Dwellers International in South Africa. She says people are often offered short-term help when faced by disasters such as floods, rather than longer-term assistance to help them adapt to future events. 
every day you can hear people's houses are being blown away because of the floods. When you go to the municipalities for support, they will come with humanitarian aid, but it's not a long-term support because if my house has been blown away and you bring me at end and one bag of mealy mealy and sugar and tea and you are saying you have supported me to address that disaster, it's a once-off support, but my house is no more. I don't have money to rebuild my house. The problem Rose identifies is not just that some support for affected communities is too short term, it's that those providing it have not involved those affected by the challenges in any decision making. We always say if you give it directly to the people who are affected with the monitoring system from government, then the people will do something that is for long term rather than buying food that will finish that time. Give us the resources. Give us the technical support. Let's do it together rather than you doing it for us. Because if you do it for us, it will never be the way we want it to be. But this isn't just about shaping projects in ways that local communities want. It's also about embedding projects in local power structures. Here's Aisha Dinshaw, who works on climate resilience at WRI India. We've seen even well-meaning efforts where traditional water systems have been revived as, as an adaptation project. But this has been done without consultation with communities, without really engaging with the communities in a meaningful way, which has meant that even though the infrastructure, the water infrastructure, has been improved and revived, and now there's technically more water available to these communities, um, it's not something that they've been able to sustain over time because the traditional governance structures that used to underpin the water infrastructure no longer exist. This probably wouldn't have happened if the local stakeholders had been meaningfully involved and even better than being involved given authority and agency and power to be part of these decisions. As Aisha explains, the involvement of local communities then brings in multiple benefits. It's more effective because local stakeholders know what the problems are and they know what solutions would work for them as opposed to having a consultant or a donor come in and make decisions on their behalf. There are also more equitable results because, again, the local stakeholders understand their own context. They want to make sure that people in their neighborhoods, their communities, their districts aren't left behind and they know who might be left behind. And then I think there's an element of success over the long term which if adaptation efforts are rooted within communities and people have power to make decisions for themselves, they will make choices that they know are sustainable over the long term. But doing this really involves building their capacity um, and making sure what is put into place is meaningful for them. You're listening to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. The question then is how to bring in this local element. How do you bring local voices in? The first thing is that those seeking to help should avoid a top-down approach, telling people what to do. Here's Sheila Patel, also of Slum Dwellers International and a commissioner at the Global Commission on Adaptation. She's based in Mumbai. Suddenly, out of the blue, you are told that, you know, there's this campaign to deal with the issue of energy. And we want all of you to be involved in understanding that. The response of poor communities is, it's going to be monsoon in a month. 
my roof is leaking, I need to sort that out. Do you have anything for that? If you don't have, don't waste my time. There is a huge disconnect between where people are seeking simple solutions to their day-to-day -day survival challenges and these big overarching campaign-related interventions. Communities facing vulnerable conditions must be viewed as genuine partners in adaptation. Outside agencies and organisations can bring vital expertise and understanding to the conversation with those communities, working alongside decision-making bodies that exist at the local level. Together, they then find solutions that help them adapt to future challenges. Most people who live in deep vulnerability do not understand the climate space. They think that climate is something to do with somebody else. They don't think it's something to do with them. Yet, if early on the vulnerable communities and families, if they understand and anticipate the challenges related to climate change, it has three benefits for them. The first benefit is that if you can anticipate a disastrous situation, and you know that if you did something, like it's like the leaking roof or poor water access, if you know it in advance that a weather calamity will make you more vulnerable, anticipating that you do something about the challenges that you face. The second part is that the economists who've been working on climate will tell you that the kind of investment that is needed to repair something out of a disaster is much more than if you did it in advance. And where informal settlements are concerned, every year that the city delays the investment, the cost of producing that infrastructure just grows exponentially. The third one, which is very exciting, is that most of the materials we use for construction. A lot of the systems of accessing water, of disposing fecal matter, they are not good technologies. They are huge producers of carbon. Construction material, steel, cement, all these things produce huge emissions. The present water-based sewage system is going to be terrible in a planet that is going to be water scarce. So the thing that we're thinking about is that in the case of informal settlements, where there is a huge infrastructure deficit, there is tremendous potential to align a relationship between the municipality, the urban poor, and good quality technology that is green and produce solutions that are good for communities, that help them leapfrog. You know, you don't first build a concrete house and then say, no, no, no. We should do it with green material. You just jump to the green material and that it's good for the planet. This is not just about finding out about local priorities. It's also about gathering enough local data to ensure that a solution is robust and suitable. No easy thing in the informal settlements where many of the world's most vulnerable people live. Then, as Sheila Patel says, you need to demonstrate the effectiveness of that solution so communities understand how it will work for them. The work that you do in the first neighborhood is evidence that it works for the community. Once that is shown, it goes like wildfire if works for the others. Because no poor person is ready to experiment without evidence. 
So just me or somebody who's an educated professional saying this is good for you is not acceptable. They have to see it. They have to feel it. They have to touch it. They need the testimonials. You know, it's like having 5,000 innovations bubbling up in different places. Even if 10 or 15% of them become robust solutions, then scaling them up through networks and movements and then having them incorporated in policy and then just allow them to spread. Because in today's world, you don't have to go and actually see it. We have communities in this COVID period who are learning, say, for instance, kitchen gardening through WhatsApp groups. Another issue is finance. Lindley Mees is the director of the Climate Fund, which gets money towards projects at the grassroots level. The main challenge that we are addressing materially is that we are funneling resources towards grassroots groups that doesn't exist on a very large level. So the bulk of climate finance that moves towards climate action is going to top-down, often market-based strategies and often ignoring even undermining the work of grassroots groups, grassroots movements that are advancing climate action at the local level, but is interconnected and is being advanced globally. There's a number of governments that are sort of leading the way in this space. We often refer to the county climate change funds in Kenya, for example, where they're decentralizing finance for adaptation to climate change to the county level. Philippines also has a similar example of decentralizing financing for for climate change. That was Tamara Koga again. Finally, there's an important COVID-19 angle to locally-led adaptation, both in the way the pandemic has affected communities and in how adaptation can help these communities be more resilient to the impacts of the virus. Here's Lindley Mees. The pandemic has been hugely impactful on organizing across the globe because people can't physically organize together because indigenous women, peasant farmers are the ones that are getting hit the hardest in a lot of countries. And seeing how communities that have been building for sovereign power in whatever way, whether that's governance, food, energy, now have those systems to fall back on when the state is not there. Originally, it was because of the original public health crisis, and now it's because of global recession. Um, We're really seeing how, as ecological collapse ramps up, those who are working now to create their own self-determined food, energy, governance systems have a much more adaptive capacity, much greater resilience to be able to respond to something like the COVID-19 pandemic. Lindley Mees ending this dive into the whys and the hows of locally-led adaptation on the WRI Big Ideas Into Action podcast. If you're interested in finding out more, there's plenty on adaptation on wri.org slash climate resilience or under the Twitter handle adaptourworld. If you go to the podcast bit of wri.org, you'll also find episodes of Big Ideas Into Action on everything from the environmental implications of a Joe Biden presidency and restoration in Rwanda to how to solve water-based conflict, help communities fight pollution, road safety and energy access. There'll be another series along in a while with me, Nicholas Walton. Goodbye for now.